0: We, uh, we're going to pick back up in our time in Colossians. You guys ready to dive back into it? Yeah. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. Yeah, I guess uh, last time was before the new year. So we're going to be back in chapter 1 in verses 21 to 23. So you can go ahead and turn there. And if you're using one of those nice blue Bibles that we provide on the floor under your seat on page uh, 983. And so for a little bit of review, uh, last time we covered verses 15 to 20, that was our, our text last time, the previous passage, and these verses contain, as we said, one of the most majestic portraits of Christ in all of Scripture. And what made, uh, what Paul made clear about Christ in, in that passage is that Christ is preeminence in everything, as God the Son. He is God the Son. He is preeminent in everything. All things were created in him, and through him, and for him. Nothing's greater than him. Nothing precedes him. Nothing is independent of him. And nothing is outside of his authority. And the present rebellion of the world against God and Christ doesn't change any of this. He is still over all, Lord of all, preeminent in all things. And Paul concluded this passage by pointing to the fact that God will ultimately, in the end, reconcile all things to himself through Christ, thus ending the rebellious activity of the world and bringing everything and everyone into complete submission to Christ. Now, you'll notice the... uh, Sermon title is Reconciled to God. Reconciled is going to be our key term this morning. It, it essentially means to bring back into harmony and to restore peaceful relations. Reconciled. And God will cause this presently hostile and evil world to become a good and peaceful world as it originally was. Don't you remember Genesis chapter 1? That ended nicely. And two is pretty nice, but then we get to three. People just screwed it up, sinned against God, rebelled against him, and brought the curse of God upon this creation. This rebellion will end, and, and all in the end will submit to God, because he's going to restore all things. And for some, as I said, in the end, he will reconcile all things through Christ and bring everything into subjection to Christ. Well, for some, this will be a, a joyful submission in response to the Mercy of God through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. But for the rest, this will be a forced submission in the end to in response to the justice of God through the righteous judgment of Christ on the throne. But either way, all will come into submission to Christ. And Paul said in verse 20 that this reconciliation of all things was initiated by Christ's. Redemptive work on the cross in which he made peace between God and man possible. He made it possible on the cross. Christ bore the full penalty of the sins of all whom the father had chosen to save before the foundation of the world. Scripture says that. So that there would be a holy and righteous people to inhabit the new world. After all evil is destroyed. And if you think about it, if Christ did not go to the cross, then the destruction of all evil under God's righteous judgment would mean the destruction of all mankind. Have you ever had that discussion with people about why is there evil in the world? What is the meaning of all this? Why doesn't God just eradicate all evil? Well, that's because he would actually eradicate all of humanity. Because all of humanity, all of mankind is in rebellion against him. But, praise the Lord that he came into the world and gave his life as a ransom for the many. And redeemed humanity, purchased by the blood of Christ, will forever reign with Christ. Over the new creation and lovingly serve and worship him in fulfillment of God's original intention for mankind. So the way Genesis 1 starts out. God's original design for the world he created, it will be reconciled, it will be uh, come into fulfillment in the end in the new creation. There will be a redeemed humanity who will reign with Christ and rule over that creation in perfect harmony with God. As for unredeemed humanity, those who in this present world spurn God and Christ and serve only themselves to the very end, They will never partake in this new creation. And instead, the scripture says they will have their eternal place with the devil and his angels in the lake of fire, which is the second death. They will never enter the kingdom of God. They will never enter this new creation. Now, after the apostle Paul describes in verses 15 to 20, the universal preeminence of Christ And after he speaks of God's plan of reconciliation at the universal level, that is to ultimately reconcile all things on earth and in heaven through Christ, he then brings things down to a personal level for the Colossian Christians to whom he's writing. And he speaks of their personal reconciliation to God through Christ here and now. So let's read verses 21 to 23. Paul writes to the Colossians, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So in these three verses, we we learn about personal reconciliation to God. And what Paul says here is, is not only true of the Colossians, but also of every person who, upon hearing and understanding the gospel, has been born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's true of you if you are trusting in Christ. And there are basically five observations we can make in this text concerning being reconciled to God. First, we look at verse 21 and we observe the need for reconciliation. You know, those whom Paul addressed as saints, he, earlier in this letter, as saints and faithful brothers in Christ, those whom he described as having Faith in Christ and love for all the saints are those who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. It's quite a transformation. What Paul describes in 21 was the Colossians' former state, their natural condition. And They may have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, but they started out in the world as being alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. They were separated from God. They had no fellowship with God. Their thoughts towards God were hateful. Their minds were set against Him, and and this was evident, Paul says, by their ungodly behavior. So what's in the heart is manifested in behavior. They were alienated, hostile in mind, and that was manifested in the evil deeds that they were walking in, living in. Now this is obviously nothing unique to the Colossian Christians, this description, because it describes the condition of everyone apart from the saving grace of God. Everyone in their natural state. Those who are not in Christ, no matter how well-mannered they are, no matter how religious Or virtuous they may be. They are alienated from God. And they are hostile in their thinking towards Him. They reject His authority. They reject His righteous standards. They reject His wisdom. They reject His will for their lives. And all people are natural born enemies of God. Natural born rebels. And therefore all people are in need of being Personally reconciled to God. That's the need. And in verse 22, we're going to see the initiator of reconciliation, the means of reconciliation, and the purpose of reconciliation. Paul wrote to the Colossians leading up to this in verse 22 And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So who's the initiator of reconciliation? Right. And we're just looking at the verse. It's he. He. So we have to define that. And we already had a shout out. And you're absolutely right. It is God himself. And if we're going to be more precise, God, the father. And to get the proper context of verse 22, we we need to back up to verse 19. It helps us uh, follow along with all these pronouns that are in the text. After describing the preeminence of Christ, the focus was on Christ. In verse 19, Paul says, for in him, Christ, all the fullness of God is. And that could also be translated God in all his fullness was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And these verses set up verses 21 and 22. Now, if we if we substitute some of the pronouns and Uh, With proper nouns, we could paraphrase verses 19 through 22 this way. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to dwell in Christ and to reconcile to himself all things through Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ's cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled, In Christ's body of flesh through death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this passage speaks about Christ, but it is actually God the Father who is the main subject in our text. He is the initiator of reconciliation, God the Father. And apart from his determination to reconcile sinners, every single one of us would have remained alienated from him. Hostile in our mind and our thinking towards him, held captive in our own sin and destined for his wrath. Yet it was the father's good pleasure to put on display his incredible mercy and grace and to reconcile to himself people from every nation and tribe and language. Including you, if you believe the gospel and are trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. Thanks to the Father, you are no longer alienated and hostile in mind and living in sin, if you are in Christ. You are no longer fill in the blank. With your own personal history, your former way of life. Include all of the shameful and unsettling details of how you used to think and speak and act. And what you used to believe and worship and live for. That life is ended. You, if you are in Christ, are no longer who you once were. Because God the Father has mercifully and graciously reconciled you to himself. You are no longer an enemy of God, but now a friend of God. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a stranger to God, but you are now a child of God. Now let's consider the means of reconciliation. What made it possible for wicked sinners like Paul and the Colossians and us to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God? What made that possible? And if the wages of sin is death... How can we be recipients of God's mercy and grace? How did God the Father reconcile us to himself? And in verse 22, we read Paul's statement to the Colossians. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. That is, God has now reconciled you in or by means of Christ's body. Of flesh by Christ's death. Literally the Greek text says. It is by means of. The body of his flesh. Through the death. So the means by which God. Reconciled us to himself. Is is Christ's voluntary. Sacrifice of himself. On the cross. Where he bore the wrath of God. That was due to us for our sins. And he died in our place. So that the holy and righteous wrath of God towards us was completely satisfied. And this made it then possible for God to justly forgive our sins and credit us with righteousness so that we could be reconciled to Him. And all of this comes to us, how? Through faith. Through faith In Christ and in the sufficiency of his atoning work on our behalf to make us right with God. That's saving faith. Therefore, we can say that Jesus Christ himself is the means of reconciliation. For he made peace between God and man possible through his death on the cross. And it is through faith in him. That one effectively enters into that peace. Good works won't get you there. Religious rituals won't get you there. Personal sacrifices won't get you there. Spiritual devotion won't get you there. Jesus Christ alone is the way. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And the Father reconciles sinners through no one else and through nothing else but Him. It is through the work of reconciliation that God's perfect and matchless love is demonstrated to the greatest extent and it is demonstrated through His Son. And Jesus said in John chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Speaking of His coming crucifixion and death. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God the Father is the initiator. Christ himself is the means of this reconciliation. And finally, the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were still sinners... We have now received reconciliation. So back in our text in Colossians, in the second half of the verse, uh, that second half of verse 22, we see the purpose of reconciliation. Why did God reconcile us? What was the purpose? Paul explained that it was in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In reconciling us, God justly dealt with all of our sin through Christ's sacrificial work on the cross so that through our faith in Christ, God has forgiven us all our sins and credited us with righteousness. And as a result, our present status through faith, according to God, is holy, blameless, and above reproach. And that status is is not subject to change because it is secured by the blood of Christ. Back in his letter in Romans in chapter 8, Paul speaks of this. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 31, he writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, in verses 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. However, so we're talking about the purpose of reconciliation, God did not reconcile us simply to. Declare us to be holy and blameless and above reproach that he has through our faith in Christ. He's declared us to be. Our status is that. But it doesn't end there. He reconciled us ultimately to make us so. To make us holy and blameless and above reproach. I mean, you still have your sin, don't you? Are you completely and perfectly holy and blameless and above reproach right now? You are in the eyes of God, your status, because you are in Christ. But he will make you that way. He will perfect you. He will glorify you. Scripture says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He doesn't do any half jobs. And scripture also says that those whom God has justified, he will also glorify. It is certain. And this is the Father's purpose, and he will bring it about purpose of reconciling us in ephesians chapter one we read blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And in Romans chapter eight, verse 29 for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, the son might be the firstborn among many brothers. And finally, in Jude, the doxology now to him Who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So ultimately, God's purpose in reconciling us was so that we could be transformed into a holy and righteous people and thus made fit to enter his everlasting kingdom and reign with Christ and forever dwell in his glorious presence in the new creation. That is the reason why he reconciled you. And finally, in verse 23 of our text, we see the evidence of reconciliation. Paul wrote to the Colossians essentially, God reconciled you through the death of Christ in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And then in verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, Became a minister. So, how do we know that we've truly been reconciled to God? How do you know that? What's the evidence? Is there proof of that? Paul says here that you know if you continue in the faith. That is, if you continue in the teaching of Christ. And if you continue believing the gospel and trusting in Christ, if you continue in him. Jesus said in John chapter eight, he said. By the way, to these Jews, it says who had believed him. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then shortly after that, they didn't like something he said and they rejected him so he says the evidence is if you abide in my word you're truly my disciples and the apostle john said in his second epistle everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of christ does not have god whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son The statements like like these are found throughout the the New Testament. They're all over the place. And they do not imply that redeemed people can lose their salvation. That's not what these, these texts are saying, these statements are saying. Rather, they basically distinguish for us between genuine saving faith and superficial faith. Again, consider the Gospels. We read of the life of Christ. In his public ministry, how many thousands of people were just enamored by him, following him around, listening to him? Where were they when he was delivered over to be crucified? In fact, that crowd, that same crowd, had turned to say crucify him. So these are important. There is superficial faith, there's superficial devotion and commitment, and there's genuine saving faith. Life-transforming faith. So, the distinction is made between saving faith and superficial faith in these statements. And, for example, those who don't continue in the teaching of Christ but fall away prove that they never had genuine saving faith. That's what you would conclude. You know, John, Apostle John says they went out from us because they they never were of us. They've made manifest the fact that they were never truly in Christ to begin with. Many people attend church, but that doesn't prove anything. I mean, it's easy to come here. We're at a public facility. I mean, anybody can just walk in here. It doesn't make you a Christian. It's easy to come every Sunday. It's just once a week, just an hour and a half for the most part. So in the case of Paul's statement in verse 23, the condition he gives serves as a warning to the Colossians against the appeal And here's why he's saying this. He's he's giving a warning to the Colossians against the appeal and persuasiveness of the false teachers among them. If you remember, when we talked about the context of Colossians. We read later in the letter that there are, in fact, some some false teachers there, and they're trying to uh, entice and win over these Colossian Christians to their belief systems, their ideology. There were false teachers who were advocating that we read later that they supplement their faith in Christ with things like strict religious regulations, rituals, and practices in order to attain some higher level of spirituality, which presumably would bring them closer to God. It seems to be what they were advocating or teaching. You just need to you know, do these really spiritual things. You need to have a more restrictive diet. You know, be more consecrated to God. Observe more holidays, then you show you're really devoted to him. And why not have some asceticism while we're at it? Let's just hurt our body, starve ourselves till we're emaciated, because that makes us spiritual. It's what these guys were peddling. False teachers, tempting them, trying to give some kind of uh, display of spirituality, which Paul says is, there's no power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh with that. There's no real spiritual power in what these guys are doing. And he was concerned because buying into such nonsense, which it seemed there at least was some kind of temptation, uh, because he wouldn't have had to address address this issue if there wasn't really uh, an appeal among the Colossians, saying, these guys, I mean, they seem really wise. I mean, they seem persuasive. Yeah, that seems to be really spiritual. Yeah, maybe I would be more consecrated to God if I just... You know, with myself a little bit or, you know, had some dietary regulations or, yeah, maybe let's keep the Sabbath. Yeah, the Jews did that. Right. So that would make me more spiritual. Paul was concerned because buying into this kind of nonsense would be shifting away from the hope of the gospel. In this sense, because it would be essentially seeing Christ and his work on the cross as insufficient, insufficient insufficient in reconciling us to God and making us righteous through faith and thus holy and blameless before Him. I mean, Christ did all the work. He's the means of that reconciliation. It's through faith in Him that we're forgiven, declared righteous, credited with righteousness, and in the eyes of God are holy and blameless and above reproach. Do we need anything else? We don't need to supplement that, but as soon as you start to supplement it, you're implying that Christ didn't do enough. It was incomplete. I must take it the rest of the way. Thank you for your cross work. I'll take it from here with my diet and my Sabbath keeping. Paul warns that defecting from the faith and shifting from the hope of the gospel indicates that one is still alienated from God. And concerning this warning, one commentator writes this. I thought this was poignant. He writes this, quote, only by continuing in their faith can they hope to find a favorable, a favorable verdict from God on the day of judgment. We have in this verse, then, a real warning. This warning, along with many similar ones, presents the human responsibility side in the biblical portrayal of final salvation. God does indeed by his grace and through his spirit work to preserve his people so that they will be vindicated in the judgment. But at the same time, God's people are responsible to persevere in their faith. If they expect to see that, that vindication so we there's a common concept in in our culture of the the backslidden Christian. Well, Johnny went to youth camp and they were all around the fire and and he filled out a card saying he was dedicating his life to Jesus Christ and you know I I prayed a a sinner's prayer with him and he was coming to church for like through high school and I mean I know he's in college and you know he doesn't go to church anymore and he's you know, he's just being kind of rebellious and stuff, and you know, we, we think that. But hey, God, God saved him, um, and even if he just lives the rest of his life in rebellion and in lawlessness and immorality, that hey, but I remember that night, the campfire. It was it was powerful. The emotions were real, so it, it had to be real, right? Well, Paul warns against that, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Scripture doesn't allow that. Scripture says, if you continue in the faith, you endure to the end. So Paul's warning in verse 23 is essentially a call to keep our confidence in Christ to the very end. Christ is our ransom. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our peace. He is our hope. He is our way to God. And Paul reiterates this point later in this letter in chapter 2. What he says in verse 23, essentially issued as a condition, a warning, we see in the form of exhortation in chapter 2, he writes in verses 6 through 8, therefore, and again, this is one of the central points in his letter that he's trying to communicate to them, the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, how do you receive him? Through faith, right? Apart from works, not by works. It's through faith. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You don't, you don't graduate from the gospel. Well, that's, that's, you know, for children and stuff, that's nice. But we're going to do all this adult stuff now, like law-keeping and ritual practices and all these things. Because that's what, you know, older spiritual people do, right? And Paul says, no, no, no. Just as you were taught in the beginning, you, as you receive Christ, you continue in him. What are you rooted in? You're rooted in him. What are you built up in? or by you're built up by him established in the faith through him and he says in verse 8 see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to christ any teaching that is drawing your attention away from the sufficiency of christ or is somehow implying that you need to do more well there's no power in that it's false teaching it's taking you away from the gospel it's a temptation to shift away from the gospel that you believe and paul says no if you stay firmly planted there you continue trusting in christ you continue in him and a similar call to enduring faithfulness is also found in hebrews Although their circumstances were entirely different, I mean, in Colossians, we're dealing with the temptation of the allure of false teaching to to maybe defect from the true faith in the gospel. In Hebrews, their issue was, they had the the temptation to defect from the faith, these are Hebrews, to go back to Judaism because of, not false teaching, but because of the threat of state-sponsored persecution against Christians. (laughs) Jews who received the Messiah, now they're Christians. And all of a sudden, Rome is like, we don't like Christians. We're going to start persecuting Christians. And they're like, well, they're leaving the Jews alone now. I'm kind of tempted to just hide out. Maybe go back to being Jewish. Maybe it'll be better for me. And, and the author of Hebrews writes this very similar warning concerning the issue of persevering in the faith. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is great reward. Confidences in Christ. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, this is in quotes, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So you are called to endure in faith. That is the, the, the continuing in Christ is the evidence that you, in fact, have been reconciled, that you, in fact, indeed have been justified by God and have been forgiven by God. You're continuing in the faith. And that's one of the most objective things you can look at. Because guess what? Other evidences of genuine saving faith, love for Christ and his church, love for God and his people, right? Well, we kind of mess that up sometimes, right? Another evidence of saving faith is holiness, holy living, obedience to the will of God, submission to the word of God. How well are you doing with that? I mean... Depends on the day, right? It can fluctuate. The general pattern is obedience, sure. But the easiest thing to measure is, are you continuing in the faith? Are you continuing trusting in Christ alone to make you right with God? And, and not in works, but in the sufficiency of his work on your behalf. Are you enduring? Are you persevering in him? So this morning, we, we have been able, in just a few verses, just a small little passage in Paul's letter to the Colossians to get a a pretty good grasp on the subject of reconciliation personal reconciliation to God and in this passage you may have noticed that who who does all the work who did all the work God did it is God who did all the work and we having been reconciled to God through faith in Christ are in verse 23 simply called to continue in the faith, and in this grace in which we stand. That's what we're called to do. God gets all the glory. There's no room for boasting. And it's by grace that we have been saved. It is by grace that we shall continue. And it's by grace that we shall reach the end in glory and be, in reality, what we are in position, holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for being so gracious and merciful to take it upon yourself to reconcile us to you while we are still sinners. And doing so by sending your son into the world to lay down his life and offer it up on the cross to endure your wrath that was due to us for our sins and to bear that penalty in fools so that we might have forgiveness through faith in him and be declared righteous. What mercy you've shown us, what grace you've shown us and Lord Jesus we thank you for doing the work to make this possible, for accomplishing our redemption, for being our ransom. We pray that. In light of this, that we would be reminded of who we once were and and that would result in our praise and thanksgiving to you for your continued grace in our lives that we are standing in. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would empower us to continue in the faith, that we would not be allured by the appeal of supposed Spiritual practices or things that are offered up as somehow making us better in your sight, Lord, because you've you've perfected us, you've you've made us just in your sir, you're righteous in your eyes, Lord. We pray that we would cling to that faith, that we believe the gospel, Lord, and we continue in that belief and. And Lord, that we also are faithful with the gospel because it is the message of reconciliation that you would embolden us to proclaim it to lost souls and implore them to be reconciled to God. Tell them that they are dead in their sins, that they are alienated from, from you, but you have made a way through Christ. Your wrath is satisfied through his work on the cross and that they, through faith, can receive that forgiveness and be reconciled to you. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our ransom. Thank you for accomplishing our reconciliation. May we honor you with our lives. May we not seek to add anything to the work you have perfectly done. Our sufficiency is in you. Your grace is sufficient for us, for all things. In your name we pray, amen.